How's the volume now? It's okay? Okay. Great. Okay. <clears throat> so to um, to start, I wanna I want to take some time to check in about the compassion meditation. I think for some of you that was a familiar practice, and then for others that's probably the first time you've done something like that. And I don't want to just leave you hanging off of that (laughs) and just jump into the topic of um, faith and doubt tonight. Um, I don't actually have a mic to to pass around. so maybe this is what we'll do. Let's, how about you turn to people nearest you, making groups of no larger than four, so it could be two, three, four, and take a moment to just check in about, about the compassion practice and um, how that was for you, and, um, and then we'll, we'll bring it into a larger discussion. We'll just take uh, maybe three or so moment minutes. How about four minutes? So if you're in a group of four, you get each a minute. I'll let you know when it's halfway. Go ahead and turn to people near you. Introduce yourself. <laughs> there you go. And you can share just a little bit about how that compassion practice was for you. We'll take just a couple more minutes. So if there's someone in the group who hasn't shared yet, this would be a good time to let them begin. And you can start to finish what you're saying. And then begin thanking your group for their sharing and their listening. And then we'll come back to the fuller group. So um, maybe we can hear from a few of you. And again, we don't have... Well, I'll just try my best to repeat it back, <laughs> what you say, and um, uh, you'll have to excuse me if I end up paraphrasing. Um, but I'd like to hear from you what what that was like, how it was for you, and if you have any questions about it. Yes, Deborah. Hey. Uh-huh. 
That's where it is. <laughs> that's it. So um, the um, oh, that's an idea. There you. <laughs> so I'll do my best to to paraphrase that. Um, so Deb was saying, you know, that uh, she was appreciating. I think what you were saying, Deb, was it was it was nice that I that I led that I kept leading us through that practice and bringing us back to the body or appreciating that it was an embodied practice of compassion because oftentimes it gets really heady. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, uh, you know, I think the experience of of this practice is different for many, um, but I think my understanding is that when we really truly cultivate compassion as a practice that it's it's for it to be a way of being that it's that it is embodied that it's not just an intellectual understanding just like everything in the dharma is really meant to be an embodied experience and understanding and knowing that uh comes out of that intellectual knowing we can start there it's okay to start there um but as we progress to progress i i believe it has to go down into the body and be known there. Thank you. Anybody else? Yeah, there is. So there actually, the mic, there's a mic up here. If you don't mind, the reasons being there are those who are uh, hard of hearing and on listening devices, and then there's also uh, the recordings of people listening to this. Thank you. I find compassion really hard sometimes. Yeah. Because the the word means feeling with, right? So it's it's like empathy and it's whereas metta is more of an intention, compassion is more visceral and embodied in a way. Mm-hmm. And so you either feel compassion for people that you like, which is hard because they're hurting or there's there's some pain and you're feeling with them that pain. Mm. Or you're feeling compassion for somebody you don't like <laughs> or mm-hmm. don't agree with or don't understand and that's hard for the obvious reason that it's hard to acknowledge that pain that there, whatever is manifesting as hate or anger or violence mm-hmm. is, is caused by pain or suffering somehow. And it can be hard to acknowledge that. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it is tricky and it might be helpful to know, um, more about what, when we, when we talk about, um, cultivating compassion in this way, what it is, what we're calling compassion what is that exactly? And I think that um, it's important to know where the boundaries are for compassion, that we are in an empathetic relationship with someone in, in with, with the dukkha, the, the suffering, um, but that we're not having to f- take it on as our own in that way, that there, there is a boundary here. Um, and... We see that boundary get lost when when compassion spills into overwhelm. We become totally overwhelmed with our, you know, maybe our heart's feeling really open and we want to really be there with the difficulties, but it's just we get kind of bowled over by it. 
um, we become overwhelmed. And that's a good sign that we, we are no longer in compassion. We're in overwhelm. <laughs> it's, it's changed. Um, compassion is connected. We're connected with the suffering. But it doesn't mean that we then have to take somebody's suffering. It's, it's met with wisdom that um, we're witnessing the suffering in a way that doesn't um, blur the boundary of uh, into overwhelm, and it also doesn't move into this idea of pity, of, of pitying someone. Oh, may you feel better. You know, I hope your suffering um, is uh, released, but that's your suffering, and I'm, you know, that's not my suffering. So there's, there's two sides of this. Pity is tricky. It sometimes masks as, as real compassion. But the way we know that we've moved into pity is that we're not connected anymore. There's kind of a disconnect where we're kind of slightly or fully turned away from the suffering. We can't really fully be there with it. And so um, we can feel a separateness uh, as if, you know, someone suffering is um, unique to them, as if we we couldn't be in that place of suffering. Um, so sometimes just having those the boundaries of of compassion helps. But compassion is something to be cultivated, and it is hard. It can be hard, and it's something that is cultivated through practice and time and patience and trial and error and. Um, something certainly worthwhile staying with and and working with for some time. Anything else? Yeah, Jim. Oh, hit the switch. There you go. (laughs) Um. This is not from tonight so much, but um, from the Dalai Lama example that he talked about. Someone, you know, he was talking about compassion practice, which he does for five hours every morning or something like that. Mm-hmm. And someone said, well, so if Buddhism is helping you to um, move away from suffering. Doesn't compassion, like when you connect to people, don't you suffer? Isn't that kind of going the wrong direction because you're, you're suffering when you hmm. connect with people? Mm-hmm. He went, oh, that's a, it, he sort of was surprised by that question. He thought about it for a while. Um, and he says, well, yeah, very briefly. And then it changes into that uh, wishing well. And it's, it's kind of a combination of metta that he does, I guess, or something, but compassion. But really wishing, imagining the suffering, but then imagining the relief of the suffering is what he does. So it's... You know, it's kind of he. Did, he never studied the Latin cognates and word derivations that we use, I guess, because he stud- learned different <laughs> backgrounds. But so, compassion for him then is is wishing well for people who are suffering, you know, um, something like that. And it strikes me as really close to what Tonglen does in Tibetan, also, mm-hmm. where it's breathing in the suffering of others. Um, but then you hold it within yourself <laughs> for as long as a breath lasts, mm-hmm. and then you convert it into the you know with the golden glow of love in your heart. You let it breathe out, and so the suffering exists for 
a whole breath worth, you know, if you're, you know, five seconds, then you breathe out with the light and the love. And so it's su- repeatedly suffering and repeatedly relieving the suffering. And, mm-hmm. you know, I just, I thought. Yeah, thank you. Anything else? <coughs> Any questions? Yeah, compassion practice, any of the Brahma-Vihara practices, which are really the heart practices um, in this Buddhist tradition, uh, which include loving-kindness or metta, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, and equanimity. Part of their power is that they offer protection from uh, the suffering, in a sense, yeah, we might be in contact with it, but we are anyway. We can't really truly be separate from it. Whether it's our own suffering, we certainly can't escape that. We can we have lots of methods. <laughs> lots of some of them even healthy, seemingly healthy methods, some of them not so healthy. And then the suffering that's in the world. We're not, we can't separate from that. So we're in it anyway. Uh, a compassion, a practice like compassion, where we're, we're actually asked to turn towards the suffering and be with the difficult, actually ends up being a protection in itself. It's a different protection. Oftentimes we have our, you know, emotional protections where we kind of throw up our emotional wall. Um, we have different ways that we um, um, create uh, boundaries, uh, uh, relational boundaries, so that we, um, maybe it's for good reason, for protection. Uh, we do a lot of things out of fear to protect ourselves. Compassion is a different type of protection. It is a protection of our capacity. It's our capacity that is being cultivated. It's partly what's being cultivated when we're practicing something like compassion. Our capacity to be with what's challenging and difficult and uncomfortable. The more and more we practice in this way, turning towards that that suffering, whether it's ours or someone else's, we are... Uh, training our our mind, our heart to stay steady, not to be bowled over by overwhelm, to learn um, how do I hold this moment that is so hard without completely closing down? How do I stay present with this? How do I really be authentic with this moment that is so uncomfortable or scary? Um, our capacity grows. And that's part of what the compassion practice does for us. I was reading um, yesterday uh, an article that was sent out uh, in regards to the American Psychology Association. Uh, um, They put out a, a survey every year into the U.S., and to determine what the stress level of American citizens are. 
And it's really high. <laughs> it's going like a surprise. It's really high this year. <laughs> I just thought I'd read a little bit what it said. Uh, this is from the article, not from the survey itself, but it's reporting on what the findings were. So this is what came back, saying that more than half of Americans, 59%, said they consider this the lowest point in U.S. history that they can remember. Not low in stress. (laughs) Low as in just how they're feeling of how how things are going. A figure spanning every generation, including those who lived through World War II and Vietnam, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the September 11 terrorist attacks came up with that, uh, that this is the lowest our country has been. When asked... Oops. When asked to think about the nation this year, nearly six in ten adults, 59% reported that the current social divisiveness causes them a lot of stress. A majority of adults from both political parties say the future of the nation is a source of stress, though the number is significantly higher for Democrats, 73% than for Republicans, 56%, which is still a high number, and Independents, 59%. And then it goes on from there to, uh, of what are the, what, what in the um, certain, in in the current state of the country, what is it uh, that's causing them the most stress? And, uh, but overall, yeah, there's this pervasive um, uncertainty and um, there's a fear, a current of fear that is running through most of us. And some, of, some are somehow untouched. I don't know how, <laughs> but some are untouched by this. But I think the majority of us are somehow touched by this. And then you have uh, whatever's going on in your personal life um, on top of that. And so... Uh, stress and uncertainty and fear can start to overrule our our consciousness. How many of you relate in this way that you're experiencing a lot of stress due to, let's just say, the current state of our nation? Okay. And then how many of you on top of that are experiencing your own difficulties, uh, whether it's um, at home, at work, um, just what stuff going on in your life, your health. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So protection is important, and the right type of protection is really important. How we are arming ourselves um, matters a lot right now. If we're arming ourselves with uh, the traditional um, uh, and the traditional ways that really just ends up creating more separateness. You know, it's, it's most most of us have learned this that that is the way we protect ourselves is through separateness in some form. That somehow that keeps us safe. Uh, and now, of course, we're seeing that play out what that does, how that generates uh, so much greed and hate and delusion. It's all stemming from ignorance. 
Um, but we, that's what we know. A lot of us, that's all we know. We don't necessarily have another option on the table. And then there are those who are seekers and that one choice or those choices, they don't, it just doesn't settle right with us. And so maybe we've, we've searched for some other way. Maybe we're still searching. But there is another way. There are many different ways we can cultivate ourselves to be able to meet all of this, these challenges, whether they're internal or external, in a way that doesn't make us separate, but makes us engaged with a strength and a power that comes only from uh, wisdom, really understanding how things are, how uh, the nature of things work in this universe. With compassion, with care, with love, these are forces that we know traditionally these are forces that have been admired maybe from the beginning of time among human beings as forces that um, keep us connected, keep us um, growing. These are the same forces that are necessary in spiritual development. In the Buddhist tradition, there are five uh, powers. Uh, these are the spiritual faculties or spiritual powers that are markers for our development on the path. And they are faith, uh, vigor, which um, could be vigor, energy, or effort, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. These are all qualities that we all have. There's, There's... Some of this in all of us, whoever you are, um, whether you're in this room or not in this room, uh, these are these are human qualities. But as we cultivate a practice like mindfulness or compassion practice, uh, as we cultivate uh, the Eightfold Path or the Buddhist practice, these are qualities that begin to strengthen, and they become powers because they protect us from their opposites. So they, um, tonight I want to talk a little bit about uh, the protection that faith offers. Faith is the first one. Um, it's said to be uh, the seed. Faith is the seed that um, is necessary in any spiritual development or practice. And that could be um, spiritual in the religious sense, and it could be spiritual um, in a more secular fashion. But faith is actually said to be necessary. It's what brings us to that seeking. I imagine that most people here um, have found at some point in life an unsettledness in uh, maybe the way their life was going, or maybe your options 
in life of how to, how to be. Maybe you started questioning um, your priorities, what was really important to you, questioning what was being told you should prioritize, either by those closest to you or just by society in general. Maybe you started to have some doubt in that whole system and felt like there was something, something else that could be um, better, that there was something not being fulfilled. And this is where the seed of faith comes in. There must be something else. There must be a different way. That inkling that becomes actually like a nagging force to do something different, that's faith. It's faith because we, we don't quite know what it is yet. It's not a, really a verified faith, it's, but it's some kind of trust in something larger that there's something else or maybe it's a trust within ourselves, in our own capacity, that we can do this in a different way. Or it might be that we know someone who has a little bit more figured out, or we're inspired by something that we've read or encountered, and then we think, yeah, that's what I want. And we, we grow faithful in that, that I, this is worth going forward and checking out. So the seed of faith takes us only so far, of course. We have to verify it. We have to experience it. Maybe we begin with an intellectual knowing of how maybe this practice, for example, works. And then, just like Deb was pointing out, it becomes an embodied knowing. I remember, and I've shared this before in here, the first time I practice mindfulness was at IRC in, on the peninsula, Insight Meditation, what is it, Insight, uh, what is it, IMC, Insight Meditation Center, <laughs> and with Gil Fransdahl, although I didn't meet him at first, it took a while um, for me to actually sit with him, I ended up practicing with somebody else who was just a senior um, uh, student of his, uh, who was teaching mindfulness classes or meditation classes. And I went with a friend and I didn't really know what it was all about and wasn't actually that interested. I was just kind of going as a favor. And this person um, really wanted to go and so I said, okay. And so we went to this 45-minute intro to meditation class. And the first thing we did was uh, pay attention to our breath and count uh, each breath, and if the if your mind wandered, or you you suddenly uh, you were on five breaths and suddenly you were at ten and you missed in between, you go back to one, and then you just keep doing that for a certain period of time. If it seemed like a really long period of time, I bet it was not that long of a time. <laughs> but this was the first exercise and the first time I'd ever done anything like this. I don't think I got past five, <laughs> five breaths before having to go back to one. My mind was all over the place. And that was so amazing to me. 
I was blown away. It just made so much sense. It just, it was like someone just turned a light on. This is why I am the way I am. This mind is all over the place. So I am all over the place and I'm not happy and I'm stressed and anxious and worried and all the, all, you know, the whole list. I just thought that was so incredible that no one had shown me that before. And finally I was able to see it. And it was in that moment of seeing it for myself. It wasn't because someone told me. Someone had just told me. I'm not sure I would have believed them. But in that moment, because I experienced it, it planted this really strong seed of faith. I suddenly realized this. I don't know what this is, but I know that I need it and I want it. And then it went from there. And I was going to every sit they offered from for a long time. I, I was in. Um, and so we all have these moments where we, we experience something that touches us in a way that allows us to know that there's something here. Maybe we see a lot very clearly. Maybe, maybe we've had many, many moments like this and the path and how this unfolds is, has become really clear. But there's still aspects that are in the mystery of things. And we fill it in with faith. We have enough that we, we can trust uh, that this, there's something to this. And so faith is important in this way, in the spiritual life. I like uh, Joan Halifax has a phrase. She writes that when we discover that we are already the Buddha, faith is replaced by experience and insight. And so I feel like as, as we continue to develop, that is more and more what happens. We're trusting for a long time that we're developing this kind of Buddha nature within ourselves, And then that shifts to um, really knowing that and understanding that. And the faith that is there, it's more of a, a knowing and understanding. All of this, though, becomes a power against doubt. When we begin to trust either our own capacity and understanding or we begin to trust in the wisdom of those who are holding either a lineage or um, holding some kind of truth that we're witnessing, we begin to see that there's not a lot of footing for doubt. When we are trapped in the cycle of doubt, you won't find faith there. We've lost it. So when we are here in this moment in time and we're bombarded with uh, so much that seems counter to what maybe we're trying to cultivate in our practice, we can easily get distracted we can feel uh, pulled out of our own practice and distracted into um, a doubt of 
uh, you know, what's the point? Why does my cultivating of this practice, what does this have to do with anything? How does this make any difference to the craziness that's going on out in the world? I've talked to people who experience guilt that they're practicing and not out saving people or, um, you know, doing some, some, some uh, justice work or whatever it is that they feel called to do. That there's actually a guilt that forms and coming out of, stemming out of doubt that this practice has any kind of impact whatsoever. And then there can be the opposite reaction. We can look at all that that's going on out there and feel like there is nothing I can do about that. So I'm going to fully focus inward and take care of what's going on in here. And um, there can be wisdom in that. There could be wisdom in both. Um, There could be wisdom in that to fully focus on our own development. I find that as lay people, so non-monastics, this becomes really tricky. There's something a bit disconnected when we practice in this way as lay folks. Because we are so entrenched. We are part of a community that is everything. It's a community full of uh, inspiration and love and wisdom, and it's a community filled with violence and dysfunction and sickness in the mind. And so there's a balance that needs to be struck. Otherwise, even with that, cultivating just our own experience and staying separate somehow from our outer experience, we begin to develop doubt there too. We begin to fall into loneliness in that separation, feeling like uh, maybe we're all alone on this journey of cultivation that that wholesomeness and goodness needs a place to go. It needs a place to be expressed. It needs to be shared. Or else we get uh, stagnated in our practice. There's just nowhere else to go after a while as lay people. And so it's a striking of balance in both. Finding some way to... Um, cultivate a connection with with all of this. So seeing the dukkha within, finding ways to, to practice and um, continue to free our own heart and mind and stay engaged. Finding our own capacity, more and more strengthening that to be able to stay with what's going on in our immediate, and then our larger communities, because all of it affects all of it. With faith, there are a number of ways to to cultivate faith. Um, And one is to be in community, to be um, part of something, part of people 
uh, people's lives who are wise, surrounding ourselves with wisdom. There's plenty of the other. <laughs> you know, finding the people who, who have something known. It doesn't have to be in the Buddhist community. It can be, you know, someone you interact with casually throughout the day, and it just, there's something about that person that's just really grounded or has a larger perspective, someone who's connected in some way, someone who helps you engage in your own kindness and wisdom. Surround yourself with those people, and your, your faith will grow your faith in the goodness and wisdom of people, that there is a capacity there and that you can be part of that. I already mentioned seeing the Dharma for yourself, so continue practicing. It does make a difference that we cultivate internally. If we lose track of that, if we get fully distracted by all the things that are going on outside of ourselves and prioritize that, and don't prioritize some of what's going on internally, uh, we lose ground. We don't, we're not grounded anymore. There's nothing to, um, to hold our cultivation. We fall into doubt so easily. Our practice can be a place to come back to. If you're um, connected with the Buddhist practice, finding other sources in the Buddhist practice that help uh, boister your own personal practice, um, building more faith practice, and things like um, connecting with uh, the Buddha or um, the idea of the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, this triple gem that we chant to every single Thursday, whether you know it or not. <laughs> we're, we're taking refuge in them. Maybe your refuge isn't the Buddha, Dharma, or Sangha. Maybe it's something else finding your refuges. Where do you feel safe? Where do you feel you can cultivate yourself? Finding ways to be at ease with the mystery of things. We don't need to figure it all out. We don't need to know how this is all going to work out. That is really hard. (laughs) We want so desperately (laughs) to know. That's not how it's ever worked, and it never will. We're all in this mystery together. There are certain things, even the nature of things, that as human beings we just can't understand. It's so beyond our capacity to understand. It's the universality of things. Uh, it's said that a Buddha can know. And I think what that's pointing to really is that there are just things that we just won't fully understand. And if we can, instead of turning it to fear in those moments, like around uh, the unfolding of things, a karma, understanding of karma, uh, impermanence, if we can relax more into that and feel held in the instability of how things are, if we can rest in the ever-changing 
nature of things. When we feel our capacity in those moments, great faith is developed and our doubt is dissipated. Having faith in the goodness of others. Whenever something really horrific happens, um, like the shootings, uh, the synagogue last week, uh, there's a quote that circulates on social media from Fred Rogers, you know him as Mr. Rogers. And it's that when, he says, when I was a boy and I would see scary things on the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. Look for the helpers. Look for the goodness in people. As you're cultivating your own wholesomeness, uh, your own capacity for compassion, generosity, shared joy, wisdom, there are others who are also cultivating this in their own traditions, in their own ways. Some people are just... uh, uh, that way, inclined in that way, they're not even doing a lot of cultivating, but they just seem to have these qualities. They've come into this world for, maybe for the better of all of us. Looking for those people, being awed by them, inspired by them, this will bring in faith, not only in your own capacity, but in a greater capacity for a world that is suffering so deeply, but the possibility of us waking up out of that suffering. It's actually through our suffering that we wake up. Without dukkha, there's nothing to wake up from. And so here we are as a whole, as a, as a global community. It's not just here in the U.S. There's so much happening across the globe, so much suffering. And so we can focus on that and be defeated by that. But we can also choose to look at it from a different vantage point, a place of faith, that from that suffering, actually there's an opening. There's a, there's a huge opening happening right now where people are waking up in ways that we haven't seen. Uh, People are waking up to um, just uh, social awareness and um, economic awareness, political awareness. People are standing up against hate. Groups who haven't stood together before are standing together and helping each other. Uh, People coming to aid those who, who really need it in face of Uh, their own personal danger. It's really incredible when we can turn towards that, what's actually happening right now in the world. It's both. There's a lot of stuff that we can just shake our head and feel like, oh, it couldn't get worse. And then it does. And then there's the response that's happening from that suffering. That's really quite incredible. And so we can hold both. Both are true. And from that, we can cultivate more of this connection and and more faith in this capacity.
which then will in turn help our own capacity. So let's just pause there. And um, I want you to close your eyes for a moment. And take a moment to reflect on your own doubts that are present these days. Doubts in, maybe doubts that are related to your own practice and your own cultivation. Those of you who are new to practice, that might be a little unclear. Those of you who have been doing this a while, just noticing how... that is for you right now at this point in time. Take a moment to notice or reflect on any doubt you're having related to the future, your future, future of your loved ones, future of the planet, Noticing if there's fear or agitation that comes in. And then see what it's like to bring something else into into your awareness. It could be turning towards compassion that we cultivated earlier. It could be thinking about the goodness of people. It could be reflecting on your own capacity, how much you've already lived through, how much you've survived, and perhaps even thrived. If that doesn't connect, then thinking about the people in your life that are people of wisdom, of real beings of compassion towards you, people who believe in you, There is this this element that even if you feel you don't hold it yourself, there are those who are here to help you hold this capacity. Open your eyes. So we'll be each um, from now through through the mo- the next couple of months. We'll be exploring these these powers of protection and their opposites, and how cultivating um, these faculties. Uh, may not only be good for spiritual development, but I think maybe what's called for 
at this point in time, considering um, the amounts of stress and perhaps overwhelm, um, the fear that might be arising for some of you, that the practice uh, is really relevant in these moments. And so I hope that this is helpful. So we'll, we'll dedicate the merit of this evening and close. Um, the dedication of merit is a time at the end of every Thursday night where we just take a moment to acknowledge the wholesomeness of being together in this way. You could have done many things with your Thursday night. Um, you chose to practice and to listen to the Dharma and be with um, others who are interested in that. There's a lot of wholesomeness in that. And so in that spirit, we, uh, we dedicate that, that wholesomeness, hoping that it not only benefits ourself and our own practice, but that it benefits those we interact with in our day-to-day, that they may be touched by our own cultivation of practice, um, and that it even goes further than that, that the wholesomeness of this practice ripples out in ways that maybe we can't even understand. And then allowing it to go outward to all beings, may all beings be content and find happiness. May all beings be safe from inner and outer harm. May all beings be healthy in their mind and in their body. May all beings be free. May we all be free. Thank you for your attention.